you have a Bible, go with me to Judges chapter 6. Be in Judges chapter 6, verse 1 here in just a second. We continue walking through the book of Judges. And the, the title for our sermon series is Running in Circles. And this uh, gives the idea of uh, being active but not making any kind of progress. And I think we're all familiar with that, that metaphor of running in circles in our life. Those of us who are parents, uh, there are times when we uh, look at our children and look at our children's behavior and we do the best we can with, uh, with dis- discipline and with kind of positive rewards and those kinds of things and to try to help our children change their behavior and yet we see them kind of slumping back into the same cycle over and over and over again. I don't know about you guys, but uh, sometimes with my kids, one of the, the biggest struggle that we have is, is teaching and training our children to be thankful and to be grateful for the things they get to do and not unthankful and not grateful for the things that they don't get to do. And oftentimes it kind of feels like, you know, our, our kids are happy for a second when we do wonderful things for them. And then it's like, hey, what have you done for me lately? What's the next great thing that we're going to get to do? I don't know if you guys have that experience, but we've had that experience. And so you kind of go through this cycle where it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're doing something fun with your kids and they're happy and they're excited. And then like three minutes later, it's like, okay, hey, what's next? And it's like, hey... Uh, what's next is what you just did. You know, that's, <laughs> we try to like train and ingrain gratefulness in our kids and try to train and ingrain all kinds of things in our kids. And we see this cycle where their behavior, it doesn't seem often like there's progress. And you're like, man, I've got I've to kind of figure out when they're young, it's like, how do I teach my kid to stop biting? And when they're older, how do I teach my kid to not be disrespectful, you know, as a teenager? And so there's this cycle that they go through, and it feels like as parents, we're running in circles. That can happen in marriage as well, where you go through this cycle where uh, things are great, and you're happy, and you feel like you're really in love, and then there's a problem that arises, and he's not being as attentive as he should be, or she's not being as responsive as I think that she should be, and so now there's conflict, and there's issues in the marriage, and you kind of work through those, and then things are good again, and then, you know, you go back through, not as attentive and not as responsive, and then you go through this cycle over and over again, and you feel like, man, are we ever going to get to that place where there's all happiness, all satisfaction, and we're not going through uh, this cycle that happens at Work that happens in your own personal life. It can happen with different things that you're struggling with. It could be, uh, you know, pornography, where you're, you go through this stage where you're wrestling and you're failing with pornography, and then you go through a couple of weeks or a couple of months where you're doing well, and then you fall back into uh, struggling with it again, and you're going through this cycle over and over again in your personal life where you feel like, man, am I ever going to make any real progress? And change seems to be short-lived and it doesn't last and you end up back where you started. And so the question I want to raise tonight is, how can we stop running in circles and make actual progress? How can I stop running in circles and make actual progress? And what we see in the book of Judges is that Israel had the exact same problem. Israel was going through this cycle where they would mess up and then they would be sorry for it and then things would get better and then they would mess up again and they would be sorry for it and things would get better and they just go through this cycle. And so I want to answer this question, how can we stop running in circles and make actual progress? We're going to see this here in the story in Judges chapter 6 with a man named Gideon. So if you would take your Bible, go to Judges chapter 6 verse 1. Please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God in in preparation for our study tonight. We're going to go down through verse 16. This is what God's word says. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, 
The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the, on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of, the Mid of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Just to remind you, you'll see this on the screen, there's a, a cycle that's going on throughout the book of Judges, and we see this with every judge that we're going to look at. The people of Israel sin against God by committing idolatry. They worship foreign gods, and so God judges them by enslaving them at the hand of a foreign power. Here in Judges 6, it's the Midianites. And then the people of God cry out in repentance, and God responds by delivering them, by raising up a judge who saves them. And then the people of Israel follow the Lord as long as the judge is alive. And then when he dies, they repeat the cycle over and over again. But here's what we see for the first time throughout the book of Judges. For the first time in the book, this pattern, this cycle is broken. Because when the people of Israel cry out, in what looks like repentance, God does not first send them a savior. God first sends them a sermon. He sends a prophet who preaches to them. And when we see, we're going to see this in other places throughout the book of Judges, when this cycle is broken, when the pattern is, when, when the, the text veers off from the pattern, that's significant. That gives us a, a, an insight into how to read and how to understand what is going on. And so here in Judges chapter 6 and following, we're going to see how can we stop running in circles and make actual progress. And so walk through uh, this story. The first thing that we see is this, and that this is what the sermon teaches us. You need rep repentance, not regret. You need repentance, not regret. Israel again starts committing idolatry. They're worshiping the Baals and they're worshiping Asherah. And so God gives them into the hand of this evil satanic coalition of forces that's being led by the Midianites. Also the Amalekites and the Ishmaelites are 
uh, following along with them. And so there's this coalition that comes against them. And for seven long years, these foreign forces are devastating them, taking their crops, taking their food so that they are impoverished and so that they are starving. In fact, uh, I talked about this uh, when we began the book of Judges, but really the way that this foreign coalition and, and being led by the Midianites is being described is very similar to uh, a movie that came out several several years ago, about I think almost 20, you know, 22 years ago now, uh, was a movie called Independence Day. And you had Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum who were fighting against aliens. And these aliens that were coming to planet Earth, as we just come out of July 4th, came around July. And what they did was they these aliens would go to a planet and they were like locusts. They would, would take out all of the natural resources of that planet, would consume them, and they would move on to another planet. And that's what's happening with the Midianites. They're consuming the resources of the Israelites so that the Israelites are starving and impoverished. And they're doing this for seven long years. Unlike some of the other foreign powers that we've seen earlier in Judges that we're going to see later in Judges, they're not interested in occupying the promised land. They just want to raid the promised land and take the natural resources out. And so because of this, the text tells us, we just read, Israel hides in the rocks. They hide in the mountains. They hide in caves so that they can try to keep what they have for themselves and it can't be taken from them. And then when they finally cry out to the Lord in repentance, the Lord breaks the pattern by sending them a, a sermon instead of sending them a savior. And the reason why he sends them the sermon, the sermon is to indict them because they have continually fallen into idolatry. Over and over again, we've seen throughout the book of Judges, God has rescued his people, God has delivered his people, but they're still not getting the lesson. They're still going back to idolatry and worshiping false gods. And so this, this cycle, this spiral down that we're seeing in the nation of Israel and this sermon indicate that these cries of supposed repentance are not actual repentance that they're not really sorry for what they have done. They're, they're not uh, engaged in true repentance, which is hating your sin. They are in, engaged in regret, just upset about the consequences of their sin. And so they want out of it. Those of you who are parents, we understand uh, this, you know, the, the distinction between true repentance and between regret, right? Because oftentimes you recognize that when your kids get in trouble and they do something that they're not supposed to do and you get on to them, what do they do? They start crying, they start weeping, they start telling you how sorry they are, but they're not really sorry at all. They just don't want you to spank them or make them go to their room or take their phone away from them. So they cry these crocodile tears because they regret the consequences of what they are experiencing but they don't actually feel sorry for what they did. And there's a difference between repentance, which is hating what you did, and regret, which is just, I don't like the consequences of what I did. This is the same thing that we see when it comes to uh, marriage, when it comes to uh, somebody who is abusive toward their spouse. When they lose their temper, when they fly off the handle, when they uh, act out against their wife, and then the wife is upset and they will cry buckets of tears and say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. I, I hate what I did, but they don't really hate what they did. They just hate the consequences and they want things to go back to normal. And then when things go back to normal, then they'll engage in the same behavior over and over again. And for real change to happen in our lives, for real progress to happen in our lives, the only way it's gonna happen is with repentance, with regret. Once the consequences go away, then the behavior returns. With regret, you are stuck in the past. You're just, you're just upset about what has happened in the past. But repentance, like real repentance, means you hate your sin, you turn away from it, you receive forgiveness for it, and so now you can move forward. You're not stuck in your sin. You're not stuck in the past. You can now move forward in the forgiveness that God has given you. And so if you want 
to see real progress in your life, you need repentance, not regret. The second thing you need is this. You need gospel-centered sermons. You need gospel-centered sermons, like the people of Israel are being oppressed by the Midianites. They cry out to God. And instead of sending them a savior, God sends them a preacher, okay? Now, this is gonna sound self-serving, right? Because I'm, I'm a preacher, okay? So I, I kind of think preaching is important and necessary. But think about this, like in your house, you go back home tonight and there's a leak in your ceiling. There's a pipe that's burst. So you call the plumbing company. You say, we've got a, a, a leaky pipe and we need you to send us some help. And they send you a teacher who comes to your house and teaches you all the ways that pipes can break and burst and how you can have leaks in your ceiling. And you're gonna say, hey, that's great. That's interesting, love it. I don't need a teacher. I need a plumber who comes out to my house. But God recognizes, and we need to recognize, that more than relief from our consequences, more than a reprieve from our consequences, we need to understand why we're in this situation in the first place and understand how we can get out of it. Before you can be saved, before you can be changed, you need to know why you're in this mess and how you can get out of it. And so that's what God does. He sends this prophet who preaches the word of God to them and he explains to them why they're in this mess. You're in this mess because of your sin, because of your idolatry. No matter what God has done for you, despite all the things that God has done for you, you've rejected him. And you're worshiping the Baals and you're worshiping the Asherah and you're, you're worshiping these false gods, even though God has done all of these things for you. The reason why you're in this mess, you need to have your sin and your idolatry, putting something or someone other than God first in your life. You need to have that exposed. And that's what gospel-centered sermons do. They, they expose your sin. They expose the way that you have rejected God. They also expose for you how you can get out of it by repentance, by, by truly hating what you have done, by recognizing that you have rebelled and rejected God and that you need to turn away from that. And the other thing that the preacher here does is call them to remembrance. We've talked about this a lot. One of the ways that you see life change is by remembering what God has done for you. The preacher comes forward and he, he recounts all of the saving acts of God, all of the ways that God has been kind and merciful and gracious to the people of Israel. The New Testament tells us the exact same thing. We've talked about this many times before. Second Peter chapter one tells us, the reason why you're not growing in maturity in Christ the reason why you're not growing in faithfulness, the reason why you're not growing in righteousness, the reason why you're not fighting against your sin is not because of a lack of effort. As he says, Peter says, it's because you have forgotten that you've been cleansed of your former sins. You've forgotten the cross. You've forgotten the gospel. And so you need to reflect on, meditate on, constantly put before you what Jesus has done for you so that you can see actual transformation and life change in your life. And so sermons can tell us why we are in a mess and can tell us how we can get out of the mess we're in by pointing us to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. The third thing we see in this story is this. You need God's kindness that leads to change, not vice versa. You need God's kindness that leads to change, not vice versa. This is, this is one of the, the key principles that we need to understand in the Christian life. Too many people, and probably too many in this room, think, I need to change so that God will bless me. And the Bible says the exact opposite. God blesses you so that you will change. Over and over again, we think, I need to be good so that God loves me. And the Bible says, no, no, God loves you so that he can change you to be good. Over and over again, we see this, right? It's not that you've loved God, it's that God first loved you. 
And yet we think, okay, I've got to change my behavior so that God will be happy with me. And the gospel says, no, no, in Jesus Christ, God is happy with you. God blesses you. God is gracious to you. God is merciful to you. And he does all of those things so that you will change. And that's what we see here in this story. As the New Testament tells us, God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's not change so that I will love you. It's I love you so that you'll change. I, I do this all the time with my kids. Whenever I discipline my children, whenever I uh, get ready to discipline Judson, I'll, 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 I'll look him in the face and I'll say, listen, sweetheart, I want you to know what you did is wrong. But I'm still gonna love you anyways. I'm gonna love you no matter what you do. And not only that, Jesus loves you anyways and Jesus loves you no matter what you do. And I'm gonna love you and Jesus is gonna love you until you change, until you understand what he wants you to do and until you do better. And then I'll, and then I'll discipline him. I want him to understand, listen, my love for you and God's love for you is not dependent upon your behavior. My love for you is so strong and I'm never gonna give up on you so that you will change. I'm not expecting you to change and, and withholding my love until you change. I'm gonna love you and love you and love you and hope that that love, that unconditional love that I have for you is gonna be a catalyst to you changing. And that's exactly what God does here for Israel. God raises up a savior for Israel before there is any movement on Israel's part to repent of their sin. There, there's no movement on the part of the nation of Israel to get rid of their idols, to say they're sorry for their sin, to ask forgiveness from God. There's no movement like that. And before they take the initiative, God takes the initiative and God raises up a savior for the people of Israel. And this savior that he raises up is an, again, as we've seen throughout the book of Judges, an unlikely, weak savior, Gideon. When God comes to find him, he's hiding in the wine press, okay? That's hardly heroic. He's hiding, he's, he's, he's doing wheat farming in the wine press so that he can hide from the Midianites. And so he's hardly this heroic figure. And when God comes to him, he makes all of these excuses. God, I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. That's a terrible tribe. Okay, there's tons of Israelite tribes better than Manasseh. I'm from the, the clan of Joash, like we're the worst clan in all of the tribe. And I'm least in my dad's house. I, I am the, I, I'm the one who brings the, the least amount of return in terms of the farming in my entire family. You've made a mistake, I'm not your guy. But what we see throughout the Bible is what? Whenever you're reading your Bible, in the Old Testament especially, and you see the youngest, or the weakest, or the most unlikely, like your ears should perk up and be like, okay, that's the guy that God's gonna use, right? He uses Joseph, who's the youngest at that time of, of Jacob's sons. He uses David, who's the youngest of the children of Jesse. Like, the youngest, the weakest, the most unlikely. God delights to use those people to bring glory to himself. And that's what we see. Think about the story of Jacob. Let me just tell you this real quick. Think about the story of Jacob, okay, who's the younger brother, right? Esau is the older brother. It comes time when their dad Isaac's about to die and he's about to pour out blessing on his children. If you remember the story, he tells Esau, go out, hunt, find some game, come back, prepare it, eat a meal, and I'm gonna give you the blessing. I'm gonna give you the, the older son blessing. And then uh, Jacob and, her, and his mom hatch this plot because they, they don't want the blessing to go to Esau, they want to go to Jacob. And so they kill a goat and then they take the skin and they put it on uh, Jacob so that he'll feel like Harry Esau. And he, he goes in and takes this game to his father Isaac, who's blind at that point. And two times, like this is crazy, like uh, two times, 
Isaac says to Jacob, like, is that you, my son Esau? And Jacob says, yes. So what do we call that? That's what? A lie. And then Isaac says this, how did you get the game so quickly? Like, how did you, you know, hunt down the animal and bring it back and prepare it so quickly? And Jacob says, because the Lord gave me favor. Now that's a lie about God. What do we call that? Blasphemy. And so Jacob lies and then commits blasphemy. And guess what happens as a result? He gets the blessing of the firstborn son. You say, that doesn't make any sense. You know what? God shows kindness to lead to change rather than vice versa. Because here's what happens. God pours out his grace and his blessing and his kindness on Jacob. And then Jacob is transformed into the kind of person who can birth. His, his name is literally changed from Jacob to Israel who can birth the nation that God wants to use to bring blessing to the world. And the way that that culminates in Jacob's life is he, he wrestles with God and he has an encounter with God and God changes him on the spot. And that's the next thing that we see in this story is that if you wanna see real progress in your life, you need an encounter with the presence of God. Gideon comes face to face with the Lord and here's two things that happen in this encounter that he has with the Lord. He, he comes face to face with God and he receives a promise that God will be with him. Okay, so he comes face to face with God and he receives this promise that God will be with him. And if you have a real encounter with God, it will change you. It will, it will cause you to be the kind of person that God can use. It will cause you to be a different person than you are before you encounter God. And so we need to have an encounter with the presence of God. And the encounter that, that Gideon has, I won't have time to read all of this, but Gideon offers basically a sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord burns up the sacrifice and it shows that Gideon, despite his idolatry, has been forgiven and has been reconciled to God. And we see this throughout the Bible where sinners come into the presence of God, they require a sacrifice so they can be in the presence of God without dying. But once that happens, God then commissions them and uses them to do what he is calling them to do. And that's the exact same thing that we need in our own lives. And so Gideon here is brought into an encounter with the presence of God. He offers this sacrifice so that he is made right with God. He is no longer at enmity with God. He is at peace with God. And so God is is kind to him and God is gracious to him. Not only is God kind to him and gracious with him, but God is no longer at war with Israel. He's no longer at odds with Israel. And so now the transition in the text is now God goes to war against the foreign gods that they're worshiping and against the foreign army that is oppressing them. Okay? And that's what we see next in the text. And the, the, the fifth thing that we see is this. You need to know that your main problem is worship. You need to know that your main problem is worship. Here's what God tells Gideon. God tells Gideon, I need you to go and I need you to tear down the altar to Baal and I need you to tear down the altar to Asherah. And I want you to sacrifice a seven-year-old bull. I want you to set up a, an altar to me and I want you to sacrifice a seven-year-old bull on that altar. And here's what we see happening. We, we see Gideon goes at night because he's afraid that the people in the town who worship Baal, worship Asherah, are going to oppose him. And so he goes at night, he tears down the altar, he builds the altar to the Lord, and he sacrifices a seven-year-old bull. The reason why he does uh, sacrifices a seven-year-old bull is because the people of Israel have been 
rejecting God for seven years and because the Midianites have been opposing them for seven years. Here's what that teaches us. When, when Gideon does that, th that teaches us that our main problem, Gideon's main problem and Israel's main problem is not the Midianites who are opposing them. Their main problem is that they're not worshiping the one true God. The main problem that they have is their idols. And the, the same thing is true in your life. If you're not seeing progress in your life, in terms of your walk with the Lord, your main problem is that you're looking to something or someone else other than God to be happy. You're looking at something or someone else other than God to be happy. And you are called to kill the idols in your life and to chop them down. That's what the, the Bible tells us. Idols uh, are nothing, really. Like the things that you put your faith and your trust and your hope and you find your satisfaction in cannot deliver to you what you hope they can deliver. That can be money. That can be possessions. That can be work success. That can be a relationship, a romantic relationship. It can be kids that turn out the way that you want. Those things that we put our hope and our trust in that we hope are going to bring us the satisfaction and the happiness that we want will ultimately let us down. And that's what happens in this story. When Gideon goes and tears down those altars and builds the altar of the Lord and makes that sacrifice, in the morning all the people in the town are ticked off. They find out Gideon did it and they want to kill him. And his dad steps in, Joash, his dad, steps in and goes, listen, if Baal is really a god, then he can take care of Gideon. He doesn't need you to help him. And he says, listen, Baal's got 24 hours to kill the man who did this. Let's see if he does it. And the whole point of this is God's trying to show the people of Israel, listen, the things that you're putting your faith and your trust in are nothing. They're going to let you down. They don't have any real power or ability to save you or change you. And so you need to put your faith and your trust in me. You need to worship me, and I'm the one who is going to change you. The sixth thing that we see in the story is this. You need an unlikely savior. You need an unlikely savior. Finally, what happens in the story is the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Ishmaelites come up and they start to encamp. Their armies come up to encamp. And God, the text tells us, clothes Gideon with the Holy Spirit and Gideon gathers an army together to get ready to go out to do battle against the Midianites. Listen to what the Bible says. You'll see this on the screen. Judges chapter 6, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiazrites were called out to follow him. Here's what we see in this story. Gideon is a Christ-like figure in this story who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and to defeat the enemies of God and to rescue his people. And what Gideon does, and many of you who grew up in church may know this story, is Gideon asks for two more signs to, to show that he's really this savior that God's gonna use to deliver his people. And so one night, he puts out a, a fleece, a lamb skin, and he says, God, if I'm really the person that you're going to use to save the people of Israel, then when I wake up in the morning, I want the dew to be only on the lambskin and not on the ground. And when he comes out in the morning, the dew's only on the lambskin, not on the ground. And he says, Lord, one more. I'm going to put the fleece out again tonight. I'm going to put the lambskin out again tonight. And when I wake up in the morning, I want dew only to be on the ground and not on the lambskin. And what we see, the, the reason why he's asking for these signs is that he's asking for the Lord to build his faith and to build his trust that he's the one that God's going to use to save his people. And here's what that sign means. Do in the Old Testament, the water that comes down from heaven is a symbol of the Spirit coming down from heaven. 
And this lambskin that's being filled with the water that comes down from heaven is a symbol that Gideon is the Lamb of God that has been empowered by the Spirit of God to rescue the people of God. Does that sound familiar at all? And so Gideon is this unlikely Savior that God is going to use to rescue his people. And what he does is he gets the army ready for battle... And they come together, and then what God says to them is, listen, there's too many soldiers. I need you to weed out some of the soldiers and whittle the size of the army down to a size that I can use. Okay, there's a, there's a very specific reason why God does that. Listen to what the Bible says in Judges chapter 7, verse 2. Again, you'll see this on the screen. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. This is a key verse, okay? There's so much, you go look in, you know, study Bibles and you go look at commentaries and you go listen to sermons on the life of Gideon. There's so much ink that's wasted and breath that's wasted on Okay, why does he send these people away and, and, and why does he, you know, use this method and why does he use this tactic and all of these things that people are like trying to figure out. How does he whittle down the army? And, and God's saying, listen, you're missing the entire point. Like the big E on the eye chart is God did this to show that he's the one who saves his people, not you. And that he's the one who should get the glory, not you. And that's the whole point of this story. Like the story that you probably, again, heard when you were a kid in, in church is that they take the army down to the river and they're supposed to get water. And the people who lap up the water like a dog are sent home. And the people who use their hand and cup the water and, and bring it up, they're the ones who are retained. And there's only 300 soldiers that are retained. And people try to get into all this like, okay, why did, he, why did God do this? Is it because the ones who lapped up with their hand, they were being alert and they were being vigilant. They were ready for battle. And the people who lapped it up like a dog, they weren't being alert. They weren't being vigilant. They weren't ready for battle. And like the text doesn't tell us any of that. The text like says this is an arbitrary decision of God to get the army down to 300 to show I'm the one who saves and I'm the one who rescues my people. And that's what we need to understand that our salvation and the, the transformation that God is doing in our life is not about you, not about your effort, not about you getting the credit. It's about him getting the glory because he's the one who did it. Like here in this story, the ratio of Midianites to Israelites in terms of the armies is 450 to one. And God still rescues his people. We see this throughout the book, right? God can save through armies like we saw a couple of weeks ago with, with Barak and Deborah. God can save through a platoon of 300 people like he does here with Gideon. At the end of the book, he's going to save with one guy, Samson. That's not the issue. The issue is not the, the might or the force of the humans. It's that God delights to rescue and to change his people. And so we need an unlikely savior. Number seven, you need your faith strengthened to see God is way bigger than your problems. You need your faith strengthened to see that God is way bigger than your problems. God shows the people of Israel here that, listen, the Midianites who you think are so strong and so powerful and, and you can't go against them, they're nothing before me. Listen, if you go, go read, I don't have time to read it in, in chapter 7. The Israelite army, guess how many people the Israelite army kills in the battle that starts the war. Zero. The people of Israel come out, all they have, all they have, they have no weapons. They've got trumpets, they've got torches, and they've got pots. 
and they take the pots and they smash them and they hold up the torches and they blow the trumpets and then God confuses the Midianites and they turn on each other and they start killing each other. And then the Israelite army chases them off and pursues them and destroys them after they've destroyed each other. And this is the whole point that God wants to see. Listen, like y'all are scared of the Midianites. The Midianites are nothing before me if you'll just trust in me. If you'll trust me, if you'll be faithful to me. Your faith needs to be strengthened to see God is way bigger than your problems. And here's the other thing. This is, this is wild. When the Israelite army chases off the Midianites, they take the two generals. Okay, there's two generals that are leading the Midianite army. One's guy, one guy's name is the wolf, and one guy's name is the raven. And when they capture them, listen, they, they capture these, these generals of the Midianite army. One is hiding in a cave, and one is hiding in a wine press. So the places that the people of Israel were hiding from the Midianites, now the Midianites are hiding from the people of Israel and God gives them the, the victory. And there's this irony, this twist here that happens in the story. And what God's showing us is this, listen, no matter how difficult your circumstances are, no matter how bad things are in your life, God can take the ashes of your life and turn it to beauty. God can flip the script and make things go the opposite of the way that they're going right now. And so no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what's happening in your life, you say, man, the problems and the challenges I'm facing, I'm never gonna be able to get out of it. No, 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 listen, God is way bigger than your problems. And so you need to have your faith strengthened to see that. Number eight, you need to heed the warnings of judgment. You need to heed the warnings of judgment. I'll just say this very quickly. Uh, Gideon is used by God not just to save his people, but to judge the people who oppose him. He judges the Midianites. He then judges some of the people of the nation of Israel who oppose him, uh, the cities of Sukkoth and Penuel. And he pours out his judgment on them and he, he, he tries to get them to side with him and to side with what he is doing and they reject him. And this is what we see in the Bible is that God gives us warnings. He gives us he gives us uh, these, these glimpses of judgment to say, listen, turn around, repent, side with me, be on my side. And if you don't, then you're gonna face consequences. If you don't, there's gonna be accountability. And so you need to heed the warnings of judgment. One of the ways, again, we've talked about this and uh, we were studying the book of Galatians. One of the ways that God changes people and one of the ways that God uh, kind of gets a hold of you to get you out of the sin and the patterns that are going on in your life is to say, look, if you don't repent, here's what's gonna happen. If you don't change, here's what's gonna happen. And so God gives us warnings out of his love for us and out of his grace for us so that we'll heed the warnings and walk in the way that he wants us to walk. And so you need to heed the warnings. And then the last thing we see is this. You need a king as well as a savior. You need a king as well as a savior. Look, listen to what the Bible says in Judges chapter 8, verse 22 and following. You see this on the screen. This is what we'll close with. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw, it, threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Here's what happens. Let me just close with this. Israel asked 
Gideon to become king over the people and to set up a dynasty. You say, we want you to be king, and then we want your son to be king, and then we want his son to be king. And so they ask for this dynasty to be set up. And Gideon answers correctly. We just read, he says, no, no, listen, God is your king. God is the one who saved you, and so God is the one who should rule over you. God is your king. And so he answers correctly, but then his behavior goes against what he said. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 17 that, among other things, there's two things that kings should not do. Kings should not multiply gold for themselves, and they should not multiply wives for themselves. And the end of Judges chapter 8 tells us that Gideon multiplies gold for himself. He says, you guys give me the, the, the plunder and the spoil. And he makes this ephod that becomes an idol that the people of God worship. And then the text tells us, we didn't read it, that he, he has many wives and he fathers 70 sons. And so even though he made the right answer, his behavior doesn't back up what he is saying. He becomes a king-like figure and he... He falters at the end of his life and he sends the people of Israel into rebellion and into a further spiral down than they were engaged in before. Well, this teaches us, again, the book of, Israel, of Judges tells us that the problem was there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. What the people of Israel needed, what we need, is not just a savior who can rescue us out of our sin, but a king who can lead us to actually follow and obey God. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. There was a, several years ago, a pastor friend of mine, or a friend of my dad, he was a former uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, knew that I liked to study the Old Testament and to see how it pointed to Christ. And so he texted me, he was preaching on Gideon. He said, uh, he texted me, he said, John, where is Jesus in the Gideon story? And, and like, I didn't know how to answer it. I was like, I mean, it's not like a where's Waldo, you know? It's like, okay, like, where is he? He's behind verse six, you know? Like, you know, where's, where's Gideon? And so I, I just texted him. I was like, it's not where's Waldo. Like, the whole point of Judges is that God is raising up these little s saviors that are rescuing his people, but they're pointing to the fact that they need the, the capital S savior, Jesus Christ. And they need the, the capital K king who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is, we see from Gideon, the lamb of God who is empowered by the spirit to sacrifice himself for his people so they can be brought into right relationship with God and to crush the head of our enemies so that we are not tormented by Satan, sin, and death any longer. And this is what the book of Judges is about, how Jesus has come to rescue us from our sin and to lead us to walk in faithfulness to God. And so if you want to stop running in circles and you want to make actual progress in your life, then the question you need to ask is, who is sitting on the throne of my heart? Who is sitting on the throne of my life? Is it me making the decisions and pursuing the things that I want to decide and I want to pursue? Or is it Jesus who I'm bowing the knee to and doing what he has called me to do? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna stand and sing for a few minutes. This is a time of response to the message. And so here's what's gonna happen. When I pray and we stand and sing, there's gonna be pastors here at the front who would love to talk to you or to work through with you or pray with you about any decision that you need to make in your life. Maybe you are here tonight and you would say, you know what, John? Jesus is not on the throne of my life. I've never made him my savior. I've never made him the king over my life. And I want him to be number one. And I want him to be on the throne. We would love to talk to you about that. We would love to, whether it's the first time that you're trying to put Jesus on the throne of your heart or the hundredth time,
We'd love to talk to you about how Jesus can be first in your life. Maybe you're here and you would say, John, you know what? Jesus is my savior, but I've never followed him in obedience and baptism. And so for Jesus to be on the throne of my life, for me to be obedient to him, the first step I need to take is baptism. That's you, we'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you say, you know what? I need to follow Jesus in obedience by becoming a member of a church. I'm not a member of a church right now, but I'd love to become a member of this church. We'd love to have you. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe there's sin in your life, or maybe there's something or someone in your life that you put in first place in your life, and you need to repent of that, and you need to turn away from that, and you see God's kindness leading you to repentance. You want to come and pray at these steps or pray at your seat. That would be great. This is a time for you to respond to what the Lord is doing in your life. And so this is a, this is a time for us tonight to, to wrestle with, am I really repentant or do I just have regret? It's a time for you to wrestle in your heart, in your life. Okay, are these sermons leading me to life change or am I just listening to them and they're going in one ear and out the other? So whatever it is that the Lord is placing on your heart, placing in your life, right now is the time to respond to what the Lord is doing in your life. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would work right now. That if there's anyone here who's never given their life to Jesus for the first time, that they would give their life to Jesus tonight. Lord, if there's anyone here who would say, I'm, I'm a believer in Christ, he's my savior, but he's not king, he's not Lord. I'm not submitting my life, my marriage, my family, my job to him. That Lord, they would repent and that they would put Jesus first in their life and they would bow the knee to him. Father, most of all, I pray that we would be a church that has Jesus not just as our savior, but as our king. As we say to our king, Jesus, whatever you would have us to do, we will do. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You stand to your feet, we're gonna sing. If you have a decision to make, you come right now while we sing.